Hi, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to a brand new episode of Opera After Dark. Yay! Hey! So, today we're doing something a little bit different. We've created this um, sub-series, I guess we're going to call it, sure. the name of which I totally stole for my fiancé, and when he listens to this... Sucks for you. You should have done it first. Um, thank you, Ian. <laughs> Whatever. Um, he's got enough. He's got enough good things going for I him. I guess. So yeah. we're calling this sub series "Composers Drinking Whiskey," and we're going to be bringing you guys a couple of these this season. And what we're doing is we're just uh, getting together with the composer, and we are drinking whiskey and talking about music and life and other composers and whatever else might come up. Today we are drinking. I just want to talk about this because I feel very fancy. We are drinking a single malt whiskey that is actually from India. Mm-hmm. And it is called, is it Amroot? Is that how it pronounced it? I believe so. But Amroot I'm not an Fusion. expert. This is the single malt. Uh, check it out. It is surprisingly drinkable. Please drink responsibly because, as we discovered, it has a 50% alcohol content. Damn. Um, and it goes down easy, folks. <laughs> The easiest 50%. The easiest 50% grain alcohol that I've ever had in my life. Um, But today we are really fortunate because we are talking with uh, composer Bon Vivant. Funny. (laughs) Christopher Theron. Say hi. Hi. Hello, Radio Land. Yay. So Chris is super fancy. Chris, tell us why you're super fancy. Oh, I have to do my own intro now? Yep. Uh, <laughs> That's the I guess, we, we, I guess we, we didn't prepare anything. So. We didn't prepare anything. So Chris, why don't you right. tell us something about I, yourself? I guess you're not that fancy if you're doing your own intro. I thought there was right. like yeah. another podcast I did where people were like truly unprepared. And this guy's like, so you've won. He like literally read my bio. And he's like, so you've won a lot of awards. How do you win awards? <laughs> Is this a question? I feel bad. I feel like this guy's going to hear this. <laughs> um, it was painful. Um I, I'm a composer, I write opera, I write not opera, I live in New York, oftentimes I go other places, mm-hmm. Elspeth has sang my music. Tell us about your fancy awards, Chris. Oh my god, dude, this is, <laughs> it's not as fun when you do it about yourself. <laughs> I'm enjoying it. It's more, it's more fun for us. Tell us about the big one. Which one? Oh, I know oh. you're talking about. The Ezra Latterman <laughs> Award for Vocal Music given to me my second year of grad school. That's not <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm just being declared that I need to be told to declare that I was shortlisted for the Pulitzer Prize. It was. And 20... who else wow. was on that list? Um, some guys named John Adams. Hell yeah. <laughs> oh my Bo- god. Both of the John Adamses were yes. shortlisted that year. John and John Luther. I like this. I gotcha. prefer John C. and John Luther and John um, Adams. Like, my mistake. Um, and yes, some other prizes and blah, blah, blah. And... So I've known Chris. We went to Peabody together, right? I never went to Peabody. Why am I? Who am I thinking of? <laughs> oh my god! Like my this is going so badly. <laughs> yeah, you should prepare like a little bit. <laughs> I've known Chris for how long have I known you? Seven years. Probably. Somewhere. I've known Chris for about seven years. Um, he and uh, my fiance went to school together, which is how we met. Um, and I think we really got to know each other when I sang a song cycle of yours that you thought I was inappropriate for. But I didn't. So I knew this was going to like... Anyway. Like 
This is basically welcome to Elspeth Ayer's grievances with people <laughs> yeah. like she's This is like, why don't you like me? <laughs> you, Jordan, you sang a song cycle written originally for a soprano, mm-hmm. and I think that, you know, fox are... Flexible things at best. <laughs> yes, they are. They are uh, things that are they're ephemeral. And, right. And I didn't know your voice as well then, and you did a really good job. Thank and you. I think it was at Riverside Church. Yeah. Oh, and you weren't allowed to say shit. That was the best part. Yes. So it had a, a bad word in it, and it was in a church, and we thought we would <laughs> be nice. Church? Shit. And we thought it'd be, we'd be nice yeah. and ask, but no one was going to care. And we did ask, and they immediately were like, oh, no, you can't. You can't say that. <laughs> it was weird. And then, like, you were like, what if I change it to crap? And I was like, no, that's, that's really, dumb. really. So I think I just had her say nothing during the It was time. just an implied shit. Yeah. But anyway, Chris. Tell us about how you became like interested in, in music when you decided you wanted to be a composer. Let's start from there. Sure. Um, th- I mean, the way I always tell it is I am from the ultimate cultural wasteland, which is Long Island, <laughs> <laughs> where culture does not exist. This is where culture goes to die. Right. Um, I feel bad. Like my parents were one of these things, and I kind of said that, and they're like, "Why? We, we we tried to raise you up, <laughs> <laughs> but we took you to the symphony." They, I think they might have at least once or twice. Mm-hmm. Um, no, they're lovely people. And I was thinking about this recently is that like, I think I, I, I lucked into becoming a composer because my dad, who was, um, both of my parents were in advertising and my dad like did some work with Tower Records, which, you know, you may recall was a record store. Right. And they gave him like a ton of LPs and CDs of, and a lot of them were classical music. And I think, you know, I studied classical piano um, from the age of like five or six and was always like a competent mediocre pianist um but i think the reason i really fell in love with like composing and classical music was because there was this huge record collection in my parents house where like there was like a recording of the rite of spring and there was a recording of like bartok's uh bluebeard's castle and there was like all these things that were like can we just this can be bluebeard's castle hour i'm totally down with that by the way oh we've already done an episode on <laughs> yeah. it but we oh, can really? talk about it some more oh man we're both obsessed right there are certain operas mm-hmm. that we always come back to i think it literally sure. started with me playing like Half notes and Kyle being like, UD, <laughs> get out of that room, UD. <laughs> there was like a running gag in grad school where like um, Martin Bressing taught a class on that thing and we were just talking, like, you know, like there's always like, there's always blood on everything in an opera. And, we're right. like, and it was like, there were jokes about how like, welcome, Judith, this is my royal beanie baby collection. <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, there's blood on all these beanie babies. Right, not subtle at all. I would love a production of Bluebeard's Castle that was like that. That every door opened to something increasingly more bizarre, covered in blood. It's a commentary on capitalism. Come on, people. Um, all right. Sure. So your parents had all these records and then you just sort of be... And like, and, and I also think like I, I, I am and, like, um, as you know, a very contrarian person and mm-hmm. very... I was very rebellious youth. And I think I like accidentally rebelled my way into classical music because I was sort of <laughs> trying to find something that was more and more sort of, you know, disconnected from like literally like capitalist culture, like, you know, buying stuff. Like being from Long Island, it's like you buy stuff and then you buy stuff and then you like go buy stuff. And like that's the mm-hmm. only the way that culture exists. There's not really, I mean, there's like natural beauty in places, but like you don't really go there. You just sort of like life is revolves around consumption. There's no art there's no escape and sort of like I was and I had a great love of books and I was a big reader and that was a big thing I love music and those are sort of the things I and I moved further sort of further and further into music and I think like in a weird way you find things that are latent and experimental 
rock music and experimental jazz that you weirdly do find your way back to the, its origins in classical music. And so, so, like, at some point, I just wanted nothing to do with anything in consumer culture and was like, I'm going to do the most pure thing I could think of, which is become a classical composer, which I'm, like, thoroughly disabused of at this point. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it, like, it just seemed insanely romantic to me at the time, mm-hmm. like, you know, to... Um, you know, eschew any popular culture and become a classical composer and write symphonies and then like operas. And it was just, it, that was kind of my extremely romantic dream. And that was. You wanted to like of, live in a garret somewhere? I did, I did. Mm-hmm. I wanted to like read books and live in a garret and not, you know, not get internet brain poisoning. And I, none of that. Not die syphilis. No, none, none of that is that. I mean, I have an apartment and I. You don't have syphilis. As of my last checkup, I don't have syphilis. <laughs> <laughs> I do find that interesting, especially because a lot of our listeners are like the rare breed of younger classical music fans and aficionados and so to hear you talk about like people being like non-conformists and that's how they get into classical music but then also like romantics as their way into classical music anybody do you think that it's it's more one or the other or it's a little bit of both i think it's both they're kind of the same thing Mm -hmm. like it's like the same kind of getting away from what society teaches you to be. And society does not teach you to be a classical musician. Definitely. (laughs) There's nothing about society that's doing that. I mean, in a sense, I think I was always kind of encouraged to be some kind of artist by my parents who are not creatives themselves, but always had like a lot of regard. Like they had high regard for art and culture. Mm -hmm. And that really, I think, played into my idea that being an artist was a good idea. And they were really, I mean, they were terrified because they they were like, okay, Chris, you're extremely argumentative. Go to law school and make a lot of money. I was like, no, I'm going to go to music school. And my like, there's a very sweet story that my grandmother, my my mother told my grandmother who was ill at the time and was sort of like, give him a chance, let him try. And so that was what my parents did. And then I think they sort of dropped the law school stuff around when I got into Yale for grad school. And Mm -hmm. then they were finally like, okay, maybe you have some talent. Like, that's really cool. (laughs) Yeah. So. No, I mean, that's like a funny thing about like the, the making a life in music is actually a little less terrifying, I think, than like it sort of is made out to be to parents. It's like, yeah, you don't know exactly what your path's going to be. But like if you go to music school and you're like a smart person, and you have talent, like you will make it work somehow. It might not be exactly like literally what you envisioned, but like most of the people I know to music school with are like are OK. No one's mm-hmm. like in a gutter, you know. Right. Yeah, yeah. Passing that whiskey. But it's, I think it's more that you have to... Thank you. You have to be creative and you have to be open to doing things and no, I mean, seeing like, where things take you as opposed to just like waiting for some magnum opportunity to like drop in your lap. Although that uh, happens sometimes. Yeah, it but it's like, rarely, it's like one you know? out of five yeah, times. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, like I think about how every project I have came up and like maybe one of them like came out of the blue and the rest right. of them are like some combination of solicitation and being in the right place. And right. Exactly. No, it's so funny though, like... It's we don't talk about this stuff at all in music school either. It's like, like okay, like you know, sing your sing your songs, like write your music, and like the whole real world will come later. And then you're like, oh my god, like how do I do contract negotiations? Like how do I do all this shit? That's how do I like, do my taxes? Yeah, you know that's like the one thing I will say about my parents is my dad has owned his own business basically most of his life. So having a dad who owns his own business was, was weirdly the most useful thing to me about that. Because yeah. my dad's like you yeah, know yeah. like we have you know like I know how to like write everything off because my dad does the same thing even though it's in a completely different field Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so you so your background was in piano Mm -hmm. rather than vocal music yeah no i mean like i think i came to vocal music because i loved words Mm -hmm. more than i loved but i mean like everyone loves the voice i mean it's like 99 percent of the world's music is vocal Mm -hmm. like if you also i mean you have a, a pleasant sounding speaking voice 
I, I, you sound like a singer. Oh, well, I'm just being articulate for the podcast. I'm, I'm not a singer. I was starting to sing. I have heard you sing. You're a fine singer. Everybody can sing. I think I'm a baritone, but everyone says I'm a singer. Say I'm a tenor. I think oh, you're a tenor. Interesting. Oh. They're like, it's your neck. Your neck makes you a tenor? People, people it's do because you're, No, it's because your uh, speaking voice is like placed more in the, in the mask, if that makes sense. But everyone thinks they sound lower than they do. And you hear your voice and you're like, what? I don't think everybody. Hmm. Um, I will say, not to turn this into like, we're going to boost Chris's ego hour. But um, I do think that you have this really innate sort of gift to like um, finding and setting like the text in like a really unique way. In a way that's really that really resonates with an audience. You know what I'm saying? My, I remember it was like my first year of college and I was like making these songs out of T.S. Eliot poems. And like my teacher was like, you're good at this. And like mm-hmm. she was never complimentary. So I was sort of like, oh, wow, this is a thing. And, <laughs> and, and I, I think you're I you know, normally I was always, really nasty. Yeah. No, she was really nice. She was just like very German. So she was just like oh, gotcha. her, her compliments were limited. So yeah. I, I don't even know, like little by little, I realized this was like kind of my thing I wanted to do. And um, it became sort of dominant in my sort of schooling and education. And, and the other thing was like, so I wound up, I went to NYU for a couple of years and then I wound up at the Manhattan School, which has a great voice program. Um, and so I, you know, had this opportunity to work with a bunch of really super top-notch singers who all were really eager because there were too many people in the program. So, you know, like five or 10 of them got into the opera and the other 10 of them, 15 had nothing to do all semester. Right. So mm-hmm. they were really eager to do new music. So there was this like great moment of synergy between the two things where I was able to work with a ton of great singers and that really taught me a lot. And um, I always say that the other thing that really taught me how to work with the voice was that I had a singer girlfriend. I had several, but <laughs> several, <laughs> several singer girlfriends in um, college and grad school that, you know, you learn a lot about the voice just by hanging out with them and, them complaining about things and them talking to you about their voice lessons, which sound to be some sort of like magical incantation process where they're like, they're like, just speak the sound and you'll be in the voice. And you're just like, what? It can be the the best part of your week or the the worst worst part of your week. But it seems like extremely mystical. It's like, yeah. It is sort of like this mystical, beautiful, artistic thing, the art of the voice. Right, transcends like, beyond when and your voice is connected to the breath. It's this magical moment where it all works, but then you can't recreate it, and you're like, "How did I get yeah, there?" Yeah, well, you know, I so and then when I was in grad school, when I started like started like being like, "This is what I want to do. This is a big part of what I want to do." I took voice lessons for a year, and that was oh, oh nice, super weird. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just great baritone. He was a really good teacher. You know, he was, uh, you know, he was like, he was a fantastic singer and like sort of a neatly talented baritone. And I took lessons for a year. And like, that was a big way that I became oddly respectful of what singers do. Because like, I know the jokes about singers not being good musicians, but you literally become an idiot when you're thinking, because you're like, you're like, suddenly as a composer, I'm like realizing that I'm like, oh my God, like notes and rhythms are like the eighth thing that singers are thinking about because you're thinking yeah. about breathing, you're thinking right. about posture, you're thinking mm-hmm. about like the breath. And then you're thinking about the tone you produce, and then like, and I could not sing really basic stuff. Like I could not sing a Schubert song properly mm-hmm. when I was like thinking about the eighty things that singers are actually thinking about. So like that was actually incredibly instructive to me for sort of like how singers think. And like I never, I got better. You know, I got to be a better singer. And I, 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 I think that what was more important is I, I, I understood innately a little bit better what singers do when they sing, and that mm-hmm. was another big thing, sort of in the process of understanding voices. Where I, got, I think I got, I learned a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So, th- so this is going to be a terrible question, but 
how would you describe your compositional style in your own words? Good. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. It begins. Um, Um, I think my music is lyrical, tonal, influenced by, I'd say, a melange roughly of French Impressionism, Stravinsky, Minimalism, Morton Feldman, and Spectralism. Like, that would be, like, my blend of different sounds. I think there's a big focus on sound, like sonic Mm -hmm. objects, and I think there's a big focus on connecting those sonic objects with some kind of poetic possibility. Mm -hmm. So, like, a lot of my music sort of, like, is tonal, but it's always, like, destabilizing a little bit on some level what the tonality is through, like, intonation, through... Um, now that's like thinking about this like Elizabeth like having to find like notes in these pieces where like it's like any minor but like then there's like four B's that happen like in the air that's fine <laughs> apparently I can't sing a four over three though <laughs> um. but finding the correct B which is by the way always the highest B is that there, doesn't bother me is there one work or a couple of works that you feel like best show that style and follow up are there recordings that we can include in this episode? Sure. There's, there's everything. Um, there's, um, I'd say, like, my opera, Invisible Cities, which is sort of foundational for what I do. Um, yeah, let's talk about Invisible Cities. Sure. I have for, to say that, a little bit. that was the first piece of yours that I ever heard, and Elspeth played it for me. She's like, you have to hear this. And she played the Isadora movement mm-hmm. or section, and I was like, this is the most beautiful thing. <laughs> and then we played it in one of our classes where we were try- I was trying to get like the students that were in the class to give 21st century music a chance. Mm-hmm. I was like, listen to this, it's so beautiful. And they were like, oh, composers write like this today? <laughs> right, it was as soon as the, the tenor opened his mouth, oh, the yeah. whole audience was just like, like oh. <laughs> <laughs> So yes, let's talk about Invisible Cities. Yeah, talk about the, the genesis of, of Invisible Cities. When did you start working on it? I started working on it in grad school. Okay. I, I was sort of obsessed with Italo Calvino, who is the author, who is the basis of the work. Mm-hmm. And I was obsessed with his writing. He's you know he's an author who does what I want to do in terms of music, which is that he is a formally complex intellectual writer whose writing is seductive and lyrical and beautiful on a first read. And so sort of like... I was very inspired by these two things that like art could be like it's almost like you hear like modern music and you're like this is cerebral this is like whatever and like it's like such a stupid false dialectic because it's like something can be cerebral and beautiful like you know and and sort of you know you go to music school and you're sort of taught that like there's like there's pretty music and there's new music or like there's pretty music and there's complex music and it's like no dude like Ravel is complex and he's pretty and like so sort of like that was Calvino was the first writer you know where I, I think I, he really helped me find what I wanted to do in that like like actually, that that Isadora scene is a super good example of me as an artist because um, it's sort of built out of this weird, complicated scale that I sort of made up, which is these like it's like a it's a it's a scale that doesn't repeat at the octave, so it's like four notes of a whole tone scale, then a half step, then four notes of a whole tone scale, and like basically it's a scale that like sort of sounds tonal but sounds a little weird, and like the first half of the aria it's like only the interval of the third and a second, and the second part of the aria it's only fourths and seconds and then they come back on top of each other and there's all these dissonances but like the moral of the story is is that like you don't need to know any of that to hear that aria that was like a cool game i was playing right but the thing is pretty and beautiful and so Mm -hmm. sort of you know anyway like invisible cities was a piece i started in grad school and i didn't like had no idea where it was going and i didn't really know anything about opera. i mean i knew about opera but i didn't know how the opera world worked 
and I was just like, oh, I'll write this piece and it's got amazing text and it's like weird and it'll be done in some weird way. And um, I was extremely discouraged by a lot of, I mean, actually my professors at Yale were very encouraging, but sort of like the opera world was like, this is not an opera. This is not, a, this is not an opera, you know? Well, I mean, I wouldn't call it non-traditional, but it doesn't really have like a traditional plot. No, it doesn't. Right. Because the right. book doesn't have a right. traditional No, plot. it's a sort of series of stories. Right. And so it sort of like floated a little bit after grad when I finished grad school and it was done and I'm like, cool, I guess I failed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, right now, I was like, on to the next thing. And Every day. Yeah. That's how I still feel. Um, <laughs> you graduate. You're like, I'm a failure. Let's move on to something else. Oh, no, no. So it had, and also so had like, a reading at, the piece. at City Opera at, at right. the Vox Festival, at Vox. Right. which was also like a disaster. Like it was like oh. the performance was really bad. Was it at the whole thing or just sections? It was like the first three scenes or so and it was just like it was like a disaster it was like the conductor missed the first rehearsal cool i think the conductor missed the second rehearsal too like it was like <laughs> no i think he finally made it to the first rehearsal and then missed the second rehearsal and the performance was not great and it got like a an atrocious review in the new york times which i like reread recently and i'm like wow this was really bad like <laughs> <laughs> Um, Still, though, how cool to have your opera reviewed in the New York Times. <laughs> Not so well. Oh, oh, I don't know. It was like, it called it, I think it called it incompetent. Was like the, the You should have that on your website. No, I know. I've thought about it. But I thought that was kind of bitchy. <laughs> the, so, the headline, incompetent. But, That's how I should have introduced you. But Hailed as incompetent by the New York Times. <laughs> The one person, and then the whole concert was like shit on, and like apparently, the, like oh. I'm told that like Anthony Tomasini like wasn't like he didn't have real seats, and he was in an incredibly bad mood because like they like made him sit in the aisles, and oh. God knows why. But anyway, so oh. like the one person who really believed in the work was um, Yuval Sharon, who was the director of, of Vox at the time, and he was also a stage director, and he sort of left shortly after to move to LA and start. Doing, I think he started at LA Opera, assistant directing, and then started his own company called The Industry. And four or five years later, no, not that many, like two years later, he called me and he was like, is Invisible Cities done yet? And I'm like, yeah, why? And he's like, well, because I've started a new company and we want to stage it. And I'm like, great. And he's like, but it's in a train station and we want everyone to wear headphones. And I'm like, amazing. Like, like, which he later recounted to me that he was like vaguely terrified by because he's like, who, who wants that call? And I was like, me, the guy who writes like weird electroacoustic, like right. amplified music when like an opera with no plot. So like, <laughs> so it, it, it was, it was just like, just a kind of perfect synergy where like, I mean, the project was great. It was not smooth, but it was like, you know, I was, I'm like, sign me up. I want to do this. And so. Singers were all heard through wireless headphones in the audience. The orchestra was live and it was done in a, a train station that was operating in real time. So mm-hmm. a beautiful kind of cacophony. Like I always describe it as like an experience wherein um, the music was fixed and you could hear a score that was kind of consistent and logical and organized against a kind of like unfixed visual experience where you might see something different every night. And that mm-hmm. was to me what made the whole thing kind of magical was like the mixture of indeterminate and determinate. Mm-hmm. That's cool. How many performances did they do? There were 22. And there's a documentary, right? There's a documentary, mm-hmm. and the entire opera is also available as a DVD now. Mm-hmm. And cross your fingers on two weeks, it'll be in the iTunes store, too. So, no! Oh, my gosh. I mean, you, awesome. can, you can download the audio of the opera, but I believe a video of the opera will now be on the iTunes store as mm-hmm. well. It will come out as a streaming right. thing as well, too. So let's listen to something from it. What do you recommend? My suggestions... 
because my opinion matters. Go for it. Um, either, <laughs> either obviously Isadora or uh, a section of Venice, which I really like also. Let's do Isadora. Yay! scene was written because it was actually like I was at my aunt's house in um, New Hampshire and she has this like extremely janky piano that like doesn't work oh and I was like playing the D and the A on the piano and it was like playing these weird harmonics back and I was like oh this is such a good idea for like a piece of music oh I can totally hear that mm. yeah oh it's cool yeah the other thing was like it went through a lot of iterations in terms of the scoring and I think ultimately I actually I have like a very vivid memory of this because I had a dream because we did a workshop piece with this initial. The other thing about the workshop that I think was true, because it was a workshop at Vox, was mm-hmm. that I wrote a version for Symphony Orchestra and it was like not happening. It was like uh, yeah. not the right thing. It's a very intimate piece. It's very chamber like. And so, you know, I rescored it and like basically this two piano score became the core of it. I was sort of writing a two piano score. And from there, I um, added like a kind of. Is it, is it 12 players? I, like, I can't remember. I'm getting old. I, I don't know. <laughs> I think I added 10 I was more. about to ask you, oh. so I'm glad that I didn't. I think it's like, I mean, I can like count. It's like flute, clarinet, horn, trombone, percussion, harp, piano, three strings. So it's like, is it nine players? Oh, there's two pianos. So 11? 11. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. 11 players. Um, oh, how many singers? Eight singers. Eight singers. Sort of two mm-hmm. leads, two sort of other leads, like... Marco Polo and Kublai Khan are the only characters in the book, and they right. are the main characters. There's a tenor and baritone. There are two women who you just heard who are kind of the, like, personification of cities. Um, and then there's a kind of choral ensemble of, of four singers who sort of do a lot of different things and are commentariat and... And um, dancers. Or it was just then, in the production. Of the in the production, dancers. in the score doesn't call for dancers specifically, but the LA Dance Project joined, and there were... 
eight dancers in the project in this production and it was really fun and they were mm-hmm. really good dancers mm-hmm. and Danielle Agami did an amazing choreography so anyway like the whole thing wound up being a kind of on the verge of complete failure but instead it was a big success and we made an album a year later and the the DVD you can get is a syncing of the live album with a with a filmed lot two filmed live performances mm-hmm. which was like insane because this poor guy awesome. Daniel Anderson spent like a thousand hours or something <laughs> syncing a live performance like slowing down frames like oh a, my slowly, god but he, wow. he's, he's a genius and i'm we did a screening of that dvd at bam this past april which was really right. fun and i'm hoping to, that we actually do it i mean I, everyone in the industry wants to tour this version of it and i'm mm-hmm. hoping it will be toured yeah mm-hmm. that's amazing so if it does tour or, or like if we, if we want to see it where is the best opportunity in general in the near future in the near future, the best opportunity is to get the DVD. The DVD. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm okay. hoping other places as well. So you are working on another opera right now, right? I am. That's very The opera I like to call for everyone but Mezzo. Elspeth <laughs> <laughs> is it is bitter that she's for, not It is literally. Every other voice type, but the Mezzo Soprano. But what is this opera called? Remind me, I'm sorry. Uh, it's called In a Grove. And what it's is sort of, it about? It is about truth. Can you uh, be ooh, more specific? No. <laughs> Um, That's it. It is an adaptation of a story called In a Grove by a Japanese writer called Akutagawa. Mm-hmm. It was famously adapted as the film Rashomon by Kurosawa. Okay. And it is a story where a murder and possibly a rape take place. Oh, and gosh. it is told from seven perspectives. And each perspective mm-hmm. is different. And the audience is left to reckon with exactly what happens. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Um, so it is told from... Sort of four passerbys and then the three main characters, a robber, a woman who is married to a samurai and a samurai who is dead. Like that's the one true fact of the story is that he's dead. Mm -hmm. Um, And his story is told through a medium. So there's four singers. And so they play each of the four passersby and then they play themselves, including a countertenor who plays the ghost who recounts the story of the murderer. But it's sort of a little more complicated by that. But that is sort of the basic process of the thing. And we did a workshop of the first 10 minutes last year in London at the Mahogany with Mahogany Opera Group. And we are doing a workshop in New York in, no, rather a concert performance of part of it in March at the Morgan Library. Oh, cool. Which I have to write. <laughs> <laughs> and when is that if people want to buy tickets that day? March you know? 3rd at the Morgan Library. It's announced. It's actually marketed as In a Groove on the Morgan Library. Oh, no. <laughs> I think we actually we have a clip from that workshop performance that you were talking about. Mm-hmm. So let's listen to a little bit now so people can hear just a sneak peek of what it sounds like. Yeah. 
All right, so March 3rd at the Morgan Library in a Grove. Yes. So I want to know, since most of us will never, ever know what this feels like, Chris, I want to know what it feels like when you compose something and then you get to hear it come to life. Like, what what does that inspire in you when you get to experience that? Like, like a, a good performance. Like a late, oh, a good performance is, <laughs> a, a good performance is the reason you do it. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, I would say that, like, I would divide it into, like, four categories, which is, like... Oh, excellent. I'd say, like, 10 to 15% of performances are, like, the reason you do it. You're, like, this is amazing. This is exactly what I wanted. I'm so happy. Mm-hmm. Then, like, 30% of performances are, like, well, that was, like, pretty close. That was fine. You know, like, and then, oh, I'm losing track of my numbers now because we're getting drunk. You too. So we're at 45%. <laughs> So like two so far. So we're at forty five percent of the total, right? Yeah. yeah. Of the pie, and then like probably like thirty more are like, ugh, like yeah, that was pretty close, but I didn't enjoy it. So we're at seventy five. Seventy five percent. Then twenty five are like, I want to die. Like I just don't. <laughs> like I don't want to be here. Like this is not what I wrote. Like cringe, and then like I remember there was some performance with like a lot of like major people, and I was just like, it was such a bad performance, and I will not name any of the people. And I, there were like major, major critics there, and I was just like, I like slunk on stage, and I put a good face on, and sort of went off. And you know, thankfully, like another major critic came the next day, and he reviewed that, and that was it. Was like amazing the reviews of those concerts because the Saturday night got like all bad reviews, and the Sunday night got amazing reviews. And mm-hmm. I was just like, wow, good performance will really go a long way. Was the cast different, or was it just no, a better night? It was just a better performance. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of amazing because it's sort of like, and I even get used to certain groups doing something where i'm like oh wow like this is really compelling and then i'm like my piece is really compelling and i'm like actually it's a good performance too you know like (laughs) i am brilliant oh actually they're brilliant too it's me mozart (laughs) (laughs) no like a really good performance is like the most amazing thing ever where you're like Mm -hmm. if you believe in the piece and the performance is good it is an incredible experience is the reason you do it is the reason you don't make any you don't make nearly enough money slaving away constantly is the re- that is the reason is a great performance in a good space and you know and that's the other thing we want to talk about I mean I feel like someone was at the performance of um, Gold Peter's Skin the piece that Elspeth sings with Sandbox mm-hmm. and it was done at Trinity Wall Street after, and as opposed to National Sawdust and like I think it was like a better performance but not not like a much better performance was it do you think I felt it was on. My end, but that might be a minimal thing. But I will say the space at Trinity is more um, conducive to the type of music that you. Yeah, it was like people were like that sounded like a different piece, and I was like, it was definitely like you know the group's more short, they've done it more times, but it was not like insanely better. Like no, but people were like it sounded like a different piece. So you know that's the other thing is space, and I think a lot about space in my work and resonance and sort of so. That's the thing is like a good like I remember like I had this performance of a violin sonata in a like glory it was like literally the um opera house of brescia in italy and it was like a beautiful space and it was super resonant and it was like mind-blowingly good so it's like it's the performance it's the space and it's the music all together and when they all come together in the perfect moment it's like oh my god this is what i want to do and then a lot of the times it's not quite that it was really funny my my girlfriend came to a, I was a chamber opera I wrote when I was in American Lyric Theater, and she described it as um, 
you know, they were, they were, they were students. They're young and they're super young. And there was like a pretty valiant effort. And, um, but she was like, that was like our attempt at assembling a piece of Ikea furniture. Like it basically <laughs> resembles. <laughs> oh man. It works. It's, our bookcase works, but we definitely made like a lot of mistakes in the way. But, like, it still holds books, you know? And, like, so right, that's a right. lot of like, that's a lot of performances. You're like, well, it still holds books. You know? Right. <laughs> It still does the intended purpose. I really like that analogy. As a composer, you you as a composer, you sort of like you do endeavor to sort of. There's no booby trapping a work ultimately. What's the the opposite of booby trapping? Like there's no idiot proofing a work, but ultimately Mm -hmm. you want to make something where like things come across anyway. But then you know, Mm -hmm. then the music's an interpretive art, and you know you sort of. The more success you have, the more you're like, well, you know, Mozart gets butchered every day by five-year-olds, you know, like. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. That's true. true. (laughs) So if you could name one recorded performance that we can play in a second um, of a work that you've done that you feel like really is like the ultimate really encompasses what you want to say as a composer, like what would it be? And can we listen to part of it right now? You know, I'd love to share with you guys, which is not fully released yet, the recording of um, the piece of Fall to Earth, which is a song cycle. There's a new studio recording that's coming out next year. I'll send you guys like a a Sam is that copy of it. With Lindsay. Yeah, it sounds so good. Lindsay Kesselman and Wild Up together on a recording mixed by Nick Tip. Um, And Chris Roundtree is conducting it. It sounds so great. So we'll share that in this moment. That piece is the tits. Yeah, it's good. It's really good. Yeah. (laughs) You guys are all going to like it.
remember when I heard it and I came up to you afterwards at roulette and I think I hit you? <laughs> <laughs> and was just like, damn it, that was really awesome. That piece? I'm, I'm really it's proud good. of that piece. It's, it's not done as much as I would like. It's being done this season. It's usually done like once a season, but I want it to be done like 10 times. I mean. Yeah, yeah. Chamber orchestra pieces are just not done that much, weirdly. Like, it's They're very... really not. I mean, is it that vocally demanding for the soprano? I no, don't really know. No, no, no. I mean, it's like, it's not easy. Uh, you know, actually. Right, yeah, but I feel like it, Lindsay talked to me about it, but like Lindsay can sing anything. So like her perspective. She She's like, not that bad. She's like, it's not that bad. There are hard but I feel like Lindsay can like sing whatever and she's fine with it, so she's my, not a good I, judge of that. Story. I mean, I think that like you can share this experience too, is that like in my experience, my music is not that hard, but it asks everything of you. Yeah, I would agree with that. Like it asks everything of a singer. No moment is hard, but you have to make sure that like every part of what you do, every part of your range, every part of your delivery is really good. You know, you have to Yeah, like, it's like really emotionally draining. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's a lot. It's like me, I'm a handful. But <laughs> no, no. But I'm excited to hear that. It sounds so. It'll be a yeah a full album of vocal music from three different. It'll come out on New Amsterdam Records next August. We have a contract. Um, so it, it takes <laughs> for it takes forever. And it, it takes an endless amount of money and an endless amount of time to put out a record these days, and then you don't make any. No money whatsoever. Yeah. But Wild Up really got behind this record, and it's three different song cycles and them. So it's one piece for Lindsay Kesselman, sort of superstar soprano, and one for Theo Blechman, who is an amazing jazz new music singer. Um, sings everything from his own music to Meredith Monk. And, a, and then the last is a choir piece called The Branch Will Not Break, which is for eight singers and ten players and that will yeah so that was that will all come out next year awesome we recorded it two summers ago and it just took an endless amount of time to get it done and now it's done it's accepted we're you know it'll be put out and i'm really pleased with it but jesus christ everybody again march 3rd at the morgan library chris is there anything else you want to plug while you're here um Things people should check out. A new orchestra piece premiere with the LA Phil. Okay. I believe November 16th and 18th. Um, the Orchestra Electronics. Check that out if you're in LA. And Will they be live streaming that or no? I don't know if they will. There will be okay. a later stream of it, at least at some point. Okay. And then much later this season in May, I have a new percussion quartet concerto with third course percussion and orchestra with the Chicago... Um, Civic Orchestra. So that'll be mm-hmm. the, some of the things happening this year. And also, assuming we get the dates worked out, there will be a series I'm creating in New York with Metropolis Ensemble and Elspeth will be singing Goldbeater Skin. Right. That's the so dates are not The dates are not there yet entirely, but we're vetting dates at the moment for a series that will include that and several other concerts of my work. And yeah, that's sort of some of the highlights. In November 3rd, if you are in oh, yeah. New York um, and you want more of this conversation or possibly a repetition of what we talked about minus the cursing, um, <laughs> Naomi and I are giving a lecture at the Metropolitan Opera Guild all That's about right. opera in the new millennium, opera in the 21st century, and Chris is going to be on the panel talking about what he thinks opera is and what the future of opera will be. So um, 
check that out. You can go Definitely. on www.metguild.org and buy tickets for that. There's still some availability and come hang out with us. Yay. Tell us you love opera after dark and we'll give you a hug. Yes. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. And we'll, of course, uh, continue to post things about what's going on with Chris Mm-hmm. As these things happen, uh, so if you want reminders on all of that, make sure you follow us at uh, on Facebook and on Instagram and Twitter. We'll be sure to post all of that stuff. For sure. Totally. Yay. Thank you so much for Thanks, joining guys. us. Yay, Chris. We drank all the whiskey. Thank you, Chris. Yay. So just to, to remind you of who we are, I'm Elspeth. I'm Kyle. I'm Chris. And I'm Naomi. Yay. And thanks for listening to Opera After Dark. Bye. Bye. Bye.